Hello, Convention of State podcast listeners. Normally, we reserve this channel for audio versions of our live broadcast, COS Live and the Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. But as a bonus, we like to occasionally release some historic legacy audio for your enjoyment. The following is a 2014 speech by Professor Robert Nadelson, the world's foremost scholar on Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution. Professor Nadelson was addressing an audience of state legislators on the history underlying the Article 5 convention process. It's time we bring back the original Constitution and to talk to us about the history of Article 5 and how we know what the process really is about is the uh, most widely published scholar on, on Article 5 by any measure is, is Rob Nadelson. Rob is at the Independence Institute now in Denver. He was formerly a constitutional law professor at the University of Montana for many years. Rob's a proven conservative both in political uh, circles and in intellectual circles. This man knows Article 5 inside out and backwards. It's my privilege to stand with him today to talk to you about the process of Article 5. Rob. Before starting, I'd like to recognize two people in the room that are useful uh, resources specifically for state legislators on the issue of Article 5. One is Representative Yvette Harrell of New Mexico, stand up Yvette, and the other is Senator Kevin Lundberg of Colorado. These two people head what's called the State Legislators Article 5 Caucus. They have a newsletter. Uh, they have other information regularly about Article 5. They can keep you up to date on this. Uh, you can talk to either one of them about getting on their email list. Now, let me tell you a little bit about where I'm coming from on this. I'm a, a former businessman, a former practicing attorney, a former professor, uh, a former political candidate for governor of the great state of Montana, <laughs> and a present Article 5 advocate. How did I become an Article 5 advocate? Well, what I do for a living is I scour out parts of the Constitution that have not been very well explained. Believe it or not, you know, for a document well over 200 years old, you would have think it had been done to death. But Article 5 is one of a number of parts of the Constitution that had been under-researched and greatly misunderstood. And so in 2009, I started my research into figuring out what this convention for proposing amendments was. I wasn't paid to reach any uh, particular conclusion. I had my academic salary, and that was it. I started out with several presuppositions. One presupposition was that this is a constitutional convention. One is that it, uh, the delegates would be directly elected by the state legislatures. And thirdly, third presupposition is that the convention could not be controlled. This is a great illustration of the adage that it isn't what we don't know that is the problem, but all the things that we do know that aren't true. <laughs> as, has often happened, as often happens in constitutional research, I had to change my position. And it has always been my practice to publish my findings, whether I personally like them or not. Although I'm a conservative, I've upset a lot of conservative and libertarians with some of those findings. But I published what I found. And this is what I found on Article 5. Number one, I had been led to believe that Article 5 was essentially, as far as the courts were concerned, a political question. That is to say that 
Any disputes over such things as how many applications qualified for a particular topic, uh, that, that, that the courts would simply kick that to Congress. That turned out not to be true. In fact, opinions on Article V construing, construing that section of the Constitution from the courts begin in 1798, and they extend continuously into the 21st century. The US Supreme Court, for example, has given us very valuable guidance on what the provisions of Article V mean and how it should be interpreted. So if anyone tells you that it's going to be kicked to Congress, that's simply not true. Secondly, I found out that the court in this area is an originalist's paradise. In other words, the court follows history and they follow the original understanding of the Constitution. Again and again, the Supreme Court and other courts have looked to the founding era record to explain the terms in Article V, and that makes history relevant. Of course, history is always relevant because you don't know where you're going unless you know where you've been. But in this area, it has particular re relevance because the United States Supreme Court, that roving constitutional convention, <laughs> says that it has relevance. Thirdly, there is a, I had been led to believe that the only relevant precedent was the Constitutional Convention of 1787. I had read this many times, and I had also been told that the Constitutional Convention was convened only for the purpose of amending the Articles of Confederation and that it ran away. And all of that turned out also to be false. Do you know that we Americans have over 300 years of history of states meeting together in conventions? And the Convention for Proposing Amendments, and that's the title the Constitution gives it, not something else, the Convention for Proposing Amendments, is clearly based upon that model of states and before them colonies getting together in diplomatic type meetings in order to address particular problems. There were over 20 conventions before independence among the several states. There were 11 conventions between 1776 and 1787 among, among the newly independent states. There have been four conventions among states since the founding, the most recent one being in 1922 among Western states to negotiate the Colorado River Compact. The, pro the next point I learned was that the protocols are no mystery. The protocols, the procedures are well established. A great example, in 1861, we had a convention, a general convention of the states here in this very city to negotiate a constitutional amendment to, to uh, 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 stave off the Civil War. The, the states met for about three weeks. They elected former President John Tyler as their uh, convention president. They followed basically the same rules that had been followed at the Constitutional Convention and the many other previous conventions. And they proposed a constitutional amendment. Because it was not an Article V convention, they couldn't send it to the states to ratification. Instead, they sent their proposed compromise constitutional amendment to stave off the Civil War to Congress, which did nothing. And 600,000 Americans died. But, that, but the, the rules that were applied in Washington, D.C. in 1861 and in the other conventions are being considered by them in crafting 21st century rules. Next point. I had been led to believe, and there were a lot of articles in places like 
Harvard Law Review and Yale Law Journal that led me to believe this, that this was a convention that would be directly elected by the people and that Congress would basically determine how the, how the uh, convention delegates were selected. And that turned out not to be true. Of all the 34, 35 conventions that we've ever held, it's always been an affair where the states, the state legislatures specifically, choose how the delegates are selected and those delegates go to uh, the, the convention under the instruction of the states. There was a question from Mark Levin as to how the states, say, how the delegates are selected. They're actually called commissioners, folks, and I'll use that term from now on. How the commissioners are selected, the answer is however the state legislature determines. Commissioners are selected according to the procedures set forth in the state legislature. Usually the state legislature chooses it themselves. They could uh, delegate nomination to the governor with approval of the state senate or any other method they choose. But ultimately those folks are commissioned by the state legislatures and they are responsible to you. The other thing I learned is that this is very much a state-driven process. This process has been referred to as a convention of states repeatedly throughout our history, including at the founding. It's no accident this is called the Convention of States Project. That was the term repeatedly used in the founding. Tench Cox, who was one of the most influential of the uh, Federalist writers, explained during the course of the ratification process why it was important that the states have the power or what the implications were that the states had the power for this process. He pointed out in trying to reassure people that the states could reign in the federal government, he said that the states could obtain amendments, quote, although the president, senate, and federal house of representatives should be unanimously opposed to each and every one of them. So even though the house, the senate, and the president are unanimously opposed to amendments, it is the power of the states to put them into the constitution. Now, I want you to just do a very quick uh, mental exercise here. I want you to imagine what America would be like if the President of the United States never exercised a veto, ever. He would be reduced to irrelevancy, right? We would have, a, we would have essentially a parliamentary system. Now, I want you to imagine what the United States would be like if the U.S. Senate always rubber-stamped any bill that came out of the House of Representatives. The Senate would be reduced to a debating society, something like the House of Lords in England. Now, I want you to imagine what America would be like if the states failed to use the principal check and balance given to them in the Constitution under Article 5. Imagine, well, wait a minute, that is what America's like. This provision was put into the Constitution for a reason, precisely to deal with the kind of dysfunction we have now. For God's sake, use it. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com slash pod. Thank you for listening.